Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, so recently, uh, this has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, but recently we've identified... We've been we've been trying hard to identify a style of humor that is used by uh, our man Dirt Myth, who, who who's his, his parents know him as Garrett Smith, mm-hmm. um, whom we love dearly. We're trying to get him to quit tobacco. Everybody, could please send your emails to get Jared to Dirt get Myth. Garrett to quit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Dirt Smith's a chronic uh, t- tobacco user. And we're thinking about implementing a tobacco-free workspace. I and, resemble that remark. And it's going to be, like, very hard on Dirt Myth. But Dirt Myth humor is... Yanni, expl- explain Dirt Myth humor. There actually is no humor involved. There's, yeah, there's no, a, no, it's an attempt <laughs> at humor. It's an attempt at humor, and it's like when the person themselves thinks that what they're going to do or say is going to be funny. But in essence, is. If some if you, if someone asks you a question like, "Hey, uh, can you grab me the milk out of the refrigerator?" and you open the fridge door and you go, "No milk in here," <laughs> but you actually just looked at a gallon of milk, and then you giggle to yourself. Yeah, and then you go, like, "No, I'm just kidding." Or it's just it's just kidding humor. That like, might be the way to, to camp. Say it. He'll be like, he'll, he'll be like, "Yeah, I saw a bear," and you're in an area <laughs> with a lot of bears. You'd be like, "Oh no, shit, no, nah, just kidding." <laughs> And it winds up being, but it's not funny, and it is totally plausible anyways. 
It's a spin on Twin Lake humor, which my old girlfriend identified when we were standing on my the lake I was brought up on, and someone said to her, hey, do you see that sign across the lake? And she said, no. And they go, ah, you couldn't see a sign across that lake. And she just, it was like, she's like, this is a, the people in this community use a style of humor that I'm completely unfamiliar with. Are we tying this into anything? No. Oh, okay. But right before we turned the podcast machine on, we were talking about Dirt Myth humor. Okay. Had Dirt Myth just attempted some humor? Dirt, did you just try to say something funny a minute ago? No, no, Ron. Ron made, oh, Ron Ron, did. Yeah, Ron yeah. made sort of a, just a lowbrow kind of a humor. Yeah. Now, one more thing. I'm very lowbrow. One more thing <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything. Uh, Yanni, you were this. I just finishing up a couple odds and ends we were discussing before we turned up the podcast machine on. Mm-hmm. Yanni, you were a moment ago saying it's actually a recording machine that that you can't tell if a. And speaking of in speaking about selecting a mate and selecting a wife, you were telling Dirt Myth that a fella can't identify someone who's going to be a good mom. Wife, no mom. Wife, is I, you're sp- actually putting these words in my mouth. No, I just heard you saying this. You're talking about this you morning over night. oatmeal. No, not last night. This right morning. now. Okay, go ahead. You were saying that you you were saying that it somehow is like uh like when you get married to someone mm-hmm. and then you have a child with them that it's a complete unknown whether or not they're going to be a good mom or not. There's no way to anticipate their momness. No, that wasn't me. Yes, it was, dude. No. Well, you're embarrassing me now. Ed, someone, uh, <laughs> someone else here in the group might have been saying that. No, it was you, and I thought how odd it was because that does not jibe with the normal kind of things you say about these issues. I was the one that made the point we were talking about marriage because dirt, dirt. I can't believe no, he's not be sitting about in, this. in on this. Because there's no... There's no, don't talk about this because you're going to, because there's no, nothing. Nothing's good against come of it. No, I, I, we were giving marriage advice. Yeah, we were giving and, marriage and advice. And I was just saying on, how. Which he didn't want. How I feel like that. I think he did. That the commitment, the trust and the commitment is more important than being swept off your feet and the whole love thing. Oh, that was this morning's conversation. That, that, was, that was not what you just said a minute ago, but that was a different conversation that we had last night, this morning. This morning. Kids was just discussing basically the same thing. Okay, but like I'm saying, I do not, I'm sorry. I mean, I could be just high from sagebrush, but I don't remember saying this thing about the mom, knowing if someone could be a good mom. Yeah. I do. I have come to think, and I don't want to talk. You know, this isn't a. I don't want to talk about love advice. Um, but I have come. I have come to realize that, you know, now I've been alive so long and married so long that I've been to a lot of weddings, and I've been to a lot of weddings where I hear all about uh, people who are like, "Oh, we're just so in love. We're more in love than anyone else has ever been in love," and you wouldn't understand. This is like such a special love we have. You know, we're so in love. We need a special yeah, preacher because our love to, has. this is so, you wouldn't get it, right? <laughs> I'm always like, dude, <laughs> come talk to me. When there's a couple babies running come around Come talk to me when there's some youngsters running around that house. And I would love to hear 
how special it is. Because at some point, and it's not all it is, but there are days and times and weeks when it's just a bunch of work. Steve, can I segue into one thing before we talk about sage grouse and hunting? Oh, yeah, why not? No, I, I mean, mean, we're, we're, on, we're, on, we're on. Okay. Sky's the limit. What, what you're talking about are those guys who post things on Facebook and said, you know, they state their anniversary and I married my best friend. And it drives me crazy because if it's your best friend, you can tell them how good looking that chick at the mall you saw was earlier in the day. <laughs> And if you can't tell your wife that, she's not your best friend. Ronnie, can I remind you of one of your, another quote of yours that, that has always been a favorite of mine? What's that? It was, uh, I don't even know, I don't even believe this. I just always liked it a lot. You said one time, you were talking about, this is not meant, this is not meant to offend anybody out there. You were somehow on a tirade about people who have their dad be their best man oh, at yeah. their wedding. Oh, yeah. And Ronnie said, if your dad's your best friend, your you don't have one. Friend, you don't have any fucking friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless you, unless you and your dad used to go out in the and backyard. And you had a good relationship with your dad. I, oh, absolutely great. But if, yeah, if, if your dad's your best friend, you don't have one. Because, I mean, my dad didn't camp in the backyard in a pup tent, you know, scared of booger men and stuff. No, he was sleeping in bed with mom. No, your best friend is, you know, you, you like, but to an adult level of it, your best friend, you can tell him anything. Your wife can be the best partner in the world, but you can't tell her everything. Yeah. You cannot say, wow, look at the figure on that woman. You can no, tell I mean, your like you all, can tell your best friend that though. In all relationships, yeah. Out of respect, you ha- you, you practice some, like you practice some restraint. I'll now and then say things to my wife, and my she won't be annoyed. She's like she'll just be like disinterested, and she'll say like I think that's like that sort of thing is I think best left for the you know the guys you work with. And I think this is you a know, perfect. She's, I don't need to hear that. Yeah. You know? It's a perfect segue into hunting, social hunting. You hunt with your friends. You know that. Let's let's work. Let's can we? If you uh, hunt I got, alone, I got a good segue. Okay, no, but, se- no, segue. But, oh, we got to come back around real quick because I feel like you left it off saying that I somehow said that you can't judge a, <laughs> your, a girlfriend or fiance. Somehow have an idea of what sort of mom, and I'd like to clarify that I sure do believe that. There's a lot of things I think that you can see from a from a person and judge their character and like being. A good mother is definitely one of those things. When I had my first date with my wife, now it was a four-day long date, so it wasn't like going out to dinner or something, right? Like I was living in Alaska, and she was living she was living in New York, right? So when we agreed to go on a date, we went and cruised up and down. That we went up like by San Bernardino, Santa Monica, and California, and cruised around for a few days. So. It was a date, but it was like a whole bunch of dates stacked end to end. But I go back up to Anchorage after my first date, and I said to, uh, you know, we we're sitting in my brother's, uh, drinking beer in my brother's kitchen, and I said to uh, the guys there, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to marry her. And my friend Matt Carlson called bullshit on me. He's like, you are not. You don't know what you're talking about. So I said, I'll, I'll make a bet with you, man. And we, I said, I'll pick a date. And I can't remember what it was. It was like, I'll be married. 
I'll be engaged to her a year from today, and I'll be married to her two years from today. And we bet $100, and we drew up a contract. I signed it. He signed it. My brother signed it as a witness. Two years later, I get a $100 bill in the mail along with the contract because I knew. I knew. And part of that was I knew she'd be a, I knew she'd be like a very good mom and wouldn't, uh, you know, you'd be, I'd be able to trust her with my children. Not just with them, but to have them. Yeah, Yanni's so engaged by this. He's, he's like sending, sending Morse like, code. He's sending like Morse code with a flashlight. Ed, here's a segue for you. Ed, will you describe? Will you, describe you know, you didn't the, introduce everybody, Steve. You forgot. No. All right. Because Ed's going to be talking a whole bunch. I'm going to do some introductions. Uh, there's the Lavian Eagle. Yanni's all, all put back together again. I recently, when, when Yanni messed his knee up, I, I wrote him off. I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> but his, they fixed his knee and he's back to normal now. Now you can't even keep up. It's so good. Um, Ron Bain, lifelong friend. Hails from uh, Twin Lake, Twin Lake, Michigan, but also kind of lives in Virginia. I do. Shenandoah Valley, right? Would you say that? Yep, Shenandoah Valley. You've Ron uh, lives on a hilltop that he actually named. Beer Mountain. Lives on Beer Mountain. If you send a mail and it says Beer Mountain, Virginia, it'll get to me. <laughs> <laughs> Just use the right postal code, though. It'll help. I don't actually have my own postal code. The postman will be like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I know what he's got to be talking about. Because <laughs> <laughs> the beer cans go all the way down the driveway to the mailbox. Brody Henderson. Brody, say, you want to say anything about yourself? You haven't said a word yet. I know. I'm just listening. How long have you been married? You you have a good wife, right? I uh, actually, my tenth anniversary was about four days ago. Two children, two children, two little boys, five and one and a half. Or is so. your mom? Uh, is your wife like? Do you feel that like she's doing a good job as a mom? Oh yeah. Did you yeah. sense and she, she works her ass on? off too? Yeah. yeah. You had a good feeling. Yeah. So it wasn't like what Yanni was saying. <laughs> See, I, I, <laughs> then there's uh, Ed Ed Arnett from the a biologist. With the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Is that how you like to put it, Ed? Sure. That works for me. <laughs> TRCP. Ed, explain, TRCP. The bi- explain the biome that we're in right now. Am I using that word right? Yeah. Explain where we are right now. So we are in southern Wyoming in what many know as the Sagebrush Sea. It's um, a landscape that is mostly dominated by sagebrush. There's smatterings of aspen draws and and uh, and meadows that uh, that are scattered throughout, but by and large, this landscape is dominated by sagebrush. And we're at about seven thousand four hundred feet. Yep, above sea level. Yep. And uh, Mark Twain uh, described sagebrush as a monarch of the forest. I didn't know this till tonight, but Ed was just telling me a monarch of the forest, an exquisite miniature. Yep, that's it. How how old can a sagebrush plant be? Oh, they can be well over 100. And some of the stuff you were probably walking in today and I was walking in today was over 100 years old. But there's varied age classes. It that it can still be um that it can still be yanked out pretty easy. Yeah, it's pretty shallow soils. I mean, you know, that's they, they the the shallow the soils are pretty shallow and that's what causes root systems pretty shallow. I, I have you a serious sagebrush easy, question, not a silly one. Is is there an altitude like where sagebrush Exist and quits existing, or is it always up high, like like we are? Like, 
if you get down to the Great Plains, is it? Well, it fades out in the Great Plains for sure. Is there's, that an altitude thing, ele- or is it? Is it a- probably an elevational issue? But I can think of a lot of sagebrush below three thousand feet. Yeah. Oh, really? Kind of depends on where you're at. Yeah. In Oregon, okay. for example. I just I don't. I've seen yeah, so little. It's not of it. necessarily an altitude thing. Okay. But yeah, because sagebrush is, makes up a large part of southeast Oregon, and it's not seven thousand feet. Okay. And. Explain like its role in 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 the in the natural systems out here, like what all what all sort of uses the sagebrush seat. And, and before you do that, I'll say that at times you can walk through the sagebrush sea, and it can feel um, real empty. Yeah, <laughs> and it's been referred to as the big empty too. Is that right? Yep. Which is a false uh, impression, exactly. But it can seem that way. There's like it seems like low and kind of monotonous. And you sort of miss the details because of the expansiveness. I think that's exactly right. When you spend time in the sagebrush sea, and especially when you were hunters who spend time looking and watching for lots of things, it's teeming with life. There are 350 different species of plants and animals that depend on this particular ecosystem in one way, shape, or form. Some 350. Are op- 350. Plants and animals. But... Sage, br- sage grouse are ob- what we call obligates, so they are, they have to have sagebrush. Mule deer and other species don't necessarily have to have it; they're associates, but they're strongly dependent on it. I mean, you've hunted plenty of plenty of mule deer and sagebrush. Some call uh, the sagebrush sea the big empty because, as you said, we can walk you can walk for miles and not see anything, but it's so vast that if you're not paying attention, you know you'll miss what's out there and. There are 350-plus species of plants and animals that are dependent on this ecosystem. Some of them are obligates, and an obligate is something that has to have that particular plant community, and sage-grouse are a good example of that. Others, like mule deer, which use all kinds of different you know, plant communities, they associate with uh, sagebrush, and they associate very closely with it, and it's very important for, for mule deer. But they're they're not what we would consider a true obligate elk too. There's elk out in this system right now. But they're not obligate. Not obligates. Why? So, like why does a sage grouse? Why is the obligate to sagebrush? That's how they evolved. They evolved in this particular. But, what, community. but like in its daily, like in its daily life, is it just that in its absence they go away, or does he does he rely on it in some absolute? They way? They rely on it. They eat exclusively sage grouse in the winter. All right, see, Jesus. Back that up and edit it out. <laughs> they're not, can- yeah, they're not, cannibal- they're not they cannibalistic. No, they, they exclusively they sagebrush. exclusively sagebrush in the winter time. Yeah, and in this, you know, this time of year, they're still picking on insects and forbs, but they're starting to shift into sagebrush. But they have evolved, and they don't have a gizzard. I think you knew that. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, quick, they quick eat, question, they eat Ed. Forbs Forb. and insects. Forb. Can you uh, def- quick definition? Flowering of plant. Flowering plant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. I was reading one time that, no, a guy, a, a biologist was telling me one time, a fellow you probably know, you probably, in your, I'm sure in your, uh, in your wanderings, you've run into Robert Abernathy. Oh yeah. I yeah. know Robert quite well. He was telling me one time that a turkey, that a turkey poult, so, you know, when a turkey comes out of the egg, is eating, is, needs a lot of protein. Yep. And they're eating 75% animal matter. Yep, 25% plant matter. And then with an adult, Robert, if you're listening and I'm messing this up, I'm sorry. But I feel like you told me. I feel like this is <laughs> told me. proportion. you're and safe. In, and in, 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 in their adulthood, 
it's inverse. Yep. About 75% plant matter, 25% insect matter. That's, you know, and I didn't look up the, you know, the proportions for sage grouse before we sat down and talked, but definitely the, the chicks are eating, uh, eating a high proportion of insects and forbs, forb material. But that's, that's basically what they eat is forb, sagebrush, and, and insects in a nutshell. And that's what, you know, they use this for nesting cover. They use it for wintering habitat. It's food. So they are truly obligates of this sagebrush ecosystem. And when it goes away in even small proportions, the sage grouse numbers decline precipitously. And that's very well documented in the science. Now, you know, you hear, like, the, I think the two little factoids people hear about sage grouse all the time is it has no gizzard. And it's the biggest grouse. Yep. Second largest game bird, second only to the turkey. It's the biggest grouse. It's second only to the turkey? Yep. Turkeys, if you, people do consider them the game bird. So yeah, no, for sure. Second largest game bird, but it is definitely the largest grouse in North America. I don't, I'm not sure if there's a bigger one in Europe or not. I'd have to Capra Kelly's pretty that. damn big, Cap- man. Yeah, I was going to say. It's a grouse, though, is it? Capra Kelly? Capra Kelly's. Is it a grouse? I don't know. I thought they were. Anyway, it's a big damn bird. <laughs> it's the biggest one in North America. You know, in South America, I hunted um, with with indigenous peoples in South America. I hunted uh, curassows. You familiar with that bird? No, from your show. I they saw hunt black now. curassow, crestless curassow, and those things sit up in a tree and they roost and hoot like a turkey. Hmm. And you sneak in underneath them while they're hooting. And those boys don't wait for them to come down out of the tree. Yeah. They get under the tree and they try to skylight it. It's not that different from the sooty grouse. No, not at all. Yeah. You know what? It's more close to that. Yep. So, Yanni, cool up to now? I do have a question. Uh, Laying some groundwork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would be another obligate of the sagebrush community? Another sagebrush obligate species? Um, the uh, sage thrasher. And pygmy rabbits are obligates of the sagebrush. Couple. What's the thrasher? Snake? It's a, no. It's, it's a, a it's a songbird. Oh, yeah. What I referred to Sorry. earlier today. Mm. It, it was reprimanded for sage sparrow. <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, thrash and trash are not far off. <laughs> yeah, you should. When we reprimanded you, you should have said. <laughs> oh no, a, you misheard me. You misunderstood <laughs> me. I said it was a but, thrash bird, but, not a. <laughs> Trash bird. <laughs> we had, we had. Bravo went on point. We were many hours into hunting, and it was a solid point. And I finally, I got all excited. Cameras going in, and everything's cool. And these little birds fly out of the sage. And I said, trash birds. <laughs> and yeah, my old man, my old man had the same thing. My old man believed that there was. You had all the game birds, which you damn sure knew what their name was. Yeah, yeah. And then blue jays, which he despised. Because he loved the other bird he knew, which was robins, and he knew that blue jays were going to kill a robin, so oh, yeah. he didn't have any use for those. <laughs> All other birds were classified as Tweety birds. Tweety birds. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. LBJs, little brown jobs. Yeah, and I got a friend <laughs> who was. Ta- I got a friend who's a waterfowl biologist, and he was talking about some of the guys he grew up around. Who, th- in their mind, there were two species of ducks. 
There were mallards and scrap ducks. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't alcohol, was it? You know, no, least... no, the buddy mine's buddies. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he said there's mallards and scrap ducks. <laughs> you know, we always said in Louisiana there's two kinds of wildlife. There's game and potential game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so sage grouse. I, I want to I just, like, set the mood here. How, how many sage grouse? I'm sure there's anything being more. Obligate species to sagebrush. Sketch out their range. Their historic range. Historically. Like, what all sorts of areas, like, what kind of collections of states would you live in? Arizona all the way into three provinces of Canada. So the Great Plains. They're basically the Great Plains. And into the Intermountain West and to the Great Basin. So California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Nevada. Um, used to be in Arizona, but not anymore. Uh, Nebraska was the furthest east extent. They're, they're gone from two states, Nebraska and Arizona. Gone. Gone. Not there anymore. North Dakota is getting close. They, they're, uh, they're pretty tight, uh, pretty small numbers. Um, they actually close their hunting season, and we'll probably talk more about that later, about hunting and such. But North Dakota may re- have reinstituted theirs this year. I didn't check before it came, but I think they were talking about it. I talked to the director, but... So that's kind of the eastern edge, right up to the Great Plains, and then all the way into into the Sage Step into the Great Basin. Oh, so they go into so they're outside of the Great Plains, they're all the way into the Great Basin. Yeah, yeah, yep. So Southeast the Great, Oregon, yeah, the Great Plains, Nevada. The Great Plains begin roughly at like the Hundredth Meridian yep. and go westward to the Rockies. It's kind of like a thumb shape thing, actually, in uh, Texas Panhandle up into Canada. Yep. There's no state that's entirely Great Plains. Some people define it by rainfall. So, like, like, like fourteen inches of pre- fourteen or less precipitation. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, there's no state entirely in the Great Plains. Yeah. But then these birds jump over and go into the Great Basin. Yep. yep. So a very like, and actually a, there's a very iconic, large population there. An iconic Western bird. Yep. Absolutely. At the time uh, of European contact, or however you want to define it, how many were there? Those estimates are, are like buffalo, 60 million, you know. No, but you know, where, you know, where, you know, where, six, do you know where the 60 million estimate came from? I don't remember. I've heard this. You heard of Dodge City? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Colonel Dodge of Dodge City fame once saw a large herd of buffalo. He estimated the width of the herd. And the time it took to pass. How much time it took to <laughs> yep. pass, which took correspondence with other individuals to figure out. Yeah. Then he took a look at a map, figured out how many there must have been there, took a look at a map, and he's like, yeah, you know, I know the range of where they are. And that was probably all the ones that lived in that area. Yep. <laughs> so by my calculations, there were 60 million. And that became the fashionable estimate yep. for over a century. And we've heard 16 million for, and I can't remember where it comes from, but we've heard 16 million, at, you know, well, well before the turn of the century, sage grouse. Say, okay, because so, the, the, nowadays the fashionable estimate, yeah, the fashionable estimate for Buffalo now is 32 million. Ah, somebody perfected it to get it to 32. Yeah. So with sage grouse, it's what? Uh, 16 million before European settlement, but, so not you know, as many it as was, buffalo. no, but it was millions of birds. I mean, think about the range of buffalo. I mean, they range much further east than, yeah. than sage grouse do. So it's a range issue, but you know, 
there were a shit ton of sage grouse. Yeah, but, and, that, and that estimate has to be just a yeah. wild ass estimate. Absolutely. So now, but now it's it's still hard to estimate them because we base the counts basically on the number of males that attend Lex. And then oh, scientists... You can't just oh, say that. You're right, I can't. Right. Okay. Bag up. It's, uh, it's based on the number of males that attend their breeding grounds, which are called leks. L-E-K. So they... L-E-K. And so all the prairie grouse, sharp-tailed grouse, lesser and greater prairie chickens, sage grouse, they all go to what are called leks. And they're very high fidelity to that. They go to those year after year after year. And it's like a the little hoedown, like a little dance. It's it's where the boys go to pick up the girls. It's it's a sage grouse uh, singles bar. So they dance and they puff and they do all their things in the spring to to attract females. And just describe and what, describe the topography of a lek. Like what makes it's a actually lek a lek. very flat. It's different. It's a it's quite different than the you know what you're used to walking around for sage grouse or uh, sagebrush hunting for grouse. It's usually a flat area where they can get out and display. They're quite vulnerable to predators when they're doing this, obviously. Oh, I imagine like avian predators. Yeah, just they come through and they scatter. They're, they're waiting for the, the, the sage grouse hoedown every spring. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't think they haven't figured this out. Yeah. You know, the raptors figure it out pretty fast. Well, they, they kind of key in on it. Yeah. yeah. How but far will they travel they, to get to a lake? Um... These birds use big landscapes, and they are quite capable of traveling long distances to a lek. Um, I'm not sure on the statistics on that, but between seasonal ranges, they're it's well documented, at least 60 kilometers, 30 miles plus for, from winter to summer range, those kinds of things. They can travel a long way, and I, they're actually further distances. I just haven't verified it. I talked to a friend of mine in Montana. He said they were moving 60-plus miles um, seasonally. So, seasonally, which... It really makes it complicated for some of the conservation stuff we're working on if you don't know where they're going all the time. Yeah. But back to the numbers. So biologists really are dependent on counting those males at these breeding grounds, these breeding sites. And then and the, the sites using, are well known by now. Not all of them. You don't you don't always find all of them, so there's a detection bias and they move. Sometimes they may move quite a distance. Sometimes you know, quarter, half, mile or more to a different site and for whatever reason. But, you know, if a biologist doesn't know to go look or they're not doing aerial surveys, they may miss. So there's kind of a detection factor that's a you real can issue find, here. You can find lecking birds from the air? Yeah. Yeah, you can see them from the air. So, um, but most most people count. They, they either, you know, they do the aerial surveys, but then they'll also send in people to ground truth it to make sure they're getting the right count. Gotcha. But what what they do basically that is one month? Uh, when they go on the lake. April is really the peak. Early April is the peak. So late okay. March through you know probably about the second week of April or so. Mid by by late April they're pretty much done. But you know like if you wanted to come back out, not very far from here, there's quite a number of leks all around here. You come out here in early April and you'd, you'd see males and females. But it's really quite a spectacle to to see the boys doing their thing. But Basically, the the calculation is pretty rudimentary and it's pretty simple. Uh, and it's really the best we've got right now. There's some people that are working on some pretty fancy modeling. But you take the number of males counted on Lex and you take the proportion of females in the population. That's just based on, like, you know, when you guys kill your sage grouse, and you will, you're going to deposit a wing in the wing barrel somewhere down the road. And the biologists use those wings to tell males from females that plus capture data that they have, 
uh, nesting data, all these kinds of things with chicks and and the ones that are radio marking. All of this data is used to figure out proportions of males to females in the population. And that's a basic calculation. You take the number of males and multiply it by the estimated number of females, and there's your or multiply it by the proportion and and uh, you figure out your total uh, your total population. But so, so so does do of every male that comes out of an egg in the spring at one year of age, the next April, all those males are going to lack. They're all going to go. Is lack a verb? They're going to try, <laughs> but <laughs> the big dominant like males and, are jakes and gobblers. They yeah, exactly. The gobblers get in there. Only and do the, the dominant males are the ones right. that are going to breed. But, you know, they're yeah, but you're them counting off. them. If not, you'd have to factor in how many of those are out there. And there are there there's a bias there as well. I see. You're not counting them all. There's an observer bias, so you and I might see things very differently when we go to count a lack. Um, I mean, we try to reduce that obviously with the same observer, same lack, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, you'd but have to make sure they had a good game eye. Yeah, I know some people you'd put out there, and they'd come back and tell you there weren't any there. Exactly, and <laughs> weather too. You know, weather and those kinds of things really affect it. So, I got Do they leave so the lack issue. for the actual breeding? Process. They'll breed. They'll breed in the vicinity and on the lack. Yeah, and then and then far, the females leave, and they so they, they do, how far they do they go on. to nest? Well, it depends on the you know some of the states have documented like Wyoming here. A friend of mine uh, has documented that roughly ninety five percent of the females nest within four miles of a lack, but that varies. It it uh, it can be further. So they're going long distances. And, you know, part of the reason, you know, we, we have to manage and conserve large landscapes is because they use big landscapes. We're talking townships, not sections. Yeah, gotcha. So. Now, uh, you know, do you know, do you know the word for what it is where, like, let's say a turkey, let's say a hen turkey is going to drop, you know, 10 eggs, 12 eggs. Or was it eight eggs on average? In the vicinity, right? Yeah, somewhere in there. Between 8 and 12. I, I, are you familiar with, uh, there's a term, maybe you know, maybe maybe there is no term for it. But you know, like a female it. turkey, <laughs> a female turkey, let's say she's going to lay 8 to 12 eggs. Yep. She needs to breed with that male. She, like, breeds the male, right, then drops an egg. Breeds the male, drops the egg. Breeds the male, drops the egg. I mean, she doesn't, you know, so she's only dropping one egg every day. Right. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. 
It's dawning. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. When I she, don't believe that's the way it is with sage grouse. When she flies, she needs to be bred and then she it. flies off. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. she's got enough in her to do yeah. that. And I can't remember the term. But all does my she game lay them all at once are, or does she do that like one? Because what a turkey, she'll lay an egg every day and then synchronize the eggs because she won't incubate them until they're all down. Right. So they yeah. don't hatch over the span of eight to ten days right. because they're she, she like heat sinks them. She heat sinks them, yeah. you know. Yep. No, I think all game birds practice that because it wouldn't make sense to leave four eggs in the in the nest and have four chicks running around. Yeah, you, know, you got to take care of them. All. Absolutely not. All right, so there we are. We got elect fella goes out there, counts them up. You extrapolate from there based on some informed assumptions. Yep. And you got what? How many? How many of these grouse do we got? Well, a couple of years ago, when Ronnie and I were out here hunting, we figured there were somewhere between two and two hundred thousand and four hundred thousand at that particular time. Now it's upwards of four hundred plus thousand because the numbers are up. Um, we've seen a couple of increases in the last few years. They really started coordinating uh, back in the mid '50s. The Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is the professional association of the state wildlife agencies, so all the biologists get together and. And um, they have working groups and, and um, you know, the, the prairie grouse group was, you know, coordinating this work for a long, long time. But 
the formal number starting point for LEC counts is in 1965. Okay. And we've got a long-term trend between uh, 1965 and now. Obviously, we've increased effort with the whole issue of the bird being potentially listed, petitioned, and, and considered for listing under the ESA. That increased the, the research effort dramatically. So he says that he means listed but, as a threatened species yep. under the Endangered Species Act. But the Endangered Species Act... Just just when you're listed under the ESA, it doesn't necessarily mean you have endangered status because you can be listed under the ESA with threatened As status. Threatened, correct. Vulnerable. Yep. yep. Threatened. Or what, what orders go? It's threatened or endangered. Threatened, so, endangered, yeah. extinct. So threatened is the um, is the classification that it has a high likelihood because of all the threats surrounding it of becoming endangered. Oh, okay. Endangered is they actually have a uh, a high likelihood of becoming extinct. That's the difference like between the two. extinct. Gone. Yeah, gone. Yeah. Gone. Sorry, I've, I've lost my uh, podcast etiquette. I forget. I can't throw all these terms around. Yeah, so, but, 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 but I'll, I'll get you where you were because you were saying that uh, people started counting them in six, 1965. Yeah, so. There's been increased interest as we realize that something's happening with yeah. these birds. So we've increased the, the amount of effort and the monitoring, but the numbers go up and down. Game bird populations fluctuate dramatically. I mean, they can fluctuate 60-70% in some years just because of drought conditions or other factors and naturally. Naturally. So that's, you know, that's what makes a population estimate so hard because they do this, you know. I mean, and they're very short-lived. And well, sage grouse are a little longer lived than some other grouse, and we should talk about that a little bit as it relates to hunting, but they're not like quail and and pheasant. They're a little hardier, oh, but they, they so they, like the majority don't die within the first year. Uh, a, a chunk of them certainly do, no question. But once they hit that first year of age, they they have a they have a good likelihood of living two two to four years. Oh, okay. And I think some males can live up. You know, I don't remember what the oldest is, but it's not, it wouldn't be uncommon to find a five year old wow you know, bomber like tur- out here like a turkey. Yeah. So they're a lot hardier. They have good overwinter survival. So you know, when we start talking about you know uh, the juvenile survival after. You know, a hard winter, you know, your prairie grouse are uh, oftentimes a little hardier, particularly sage grouse, compared to like quail and pheasants and some of the other exotics that have been introduced, huns and chuckers and those kinds of critters. Yeah. They're a lot hardier. Like you look so. at a pheasant funny and they die. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've seen spots running in the woods, hunting, not hunting duskies, but been hunting elk or something, and you find like a fir tree and underneath it, it's just littered with uh dusky grouse scat right i mean just piles on top of piles on top of piles where it seems like that bird spent the whole winter in that tree yeah probably a roost yeah right yep which they kind of do that's what i've been told at least right they'll literally like pick a spot when the snow gets deep and they kind of hang out in one little zone in one tree right needles yeah Yeah. so do do these birds because we today hunting saw a couple areas where it was definitely like the poop was very concentrated do they do the same thing kind of have their little zone of sage and just they do they use these big landscapes but they use specific parts of that landscape and of course if you could figure that out every time we wouldn't (laughs) we wouldn't be skunked sometimes when we go hunting but we don't know a lot about wintering habitat you know not that we're focused on winter here but but we're just starting to understand some things about wintering habitat but once those there's there's you know they're they're going to have the the nest, 
they're going to they're going to go away from the lek at some distance away from that and nest in that landscape and then when the brood hatches they're going to take them to you know brood rearing what we call brood rearing habitat and quite often word? that's brood rearing habitat oh brood rearing okay yeah and that's where the moms are taking them to 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 get that high protein content well a lot of these wet meadows that are around here are very very important and that's why a lot of private lands are important because quite often you know the wet meadows are are concentrated on private land because that's what was settled first. So um, these these wet stringer meadows are, are vital to to brood rearing habitat. Winter habitat is a little different. Obviously, these are going to be covered with snow and lots of snow, so that's totally different. It's going to be more on higher ridges and and um, but it's still going to have safe place brush. where to get windswept. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, I want, so let me let me ba- let me back you up, man. Bro, are you cool right now? Yeah. Nothing. Everything you're wondering about has been taken care of. I have a question uh, for Brody. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, Brody hunts sage grouse in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. I do, and we're yeah. kind of talking about Wyoming. Yeah. Yep. Is it just that chunk of Wyoming that is close to Wyoming? or is Colorado. It, I mean, is it a chunk of Colorado that's right on the border there's of Wyoming? Two, there's two different areas of Colorado that hold sage grouse. So northwestern Colorado from just west of Steamboat Springs out towards Craig is a is a – big chunk of habitat would it look like this kind of like yeah very it, real similar yeah and then there's a smaller chunk of sage grouse habitat in north park near walden colorado which only has a two-day hunting season oh, that's wow. the, that a smaller population good job brody yep thank you just talked away back there all of a sudden just rolls out some good info yeah man <laughs> got anything else right now I want to see you shoot one. Uh, Ron, you cool right now? <laughs> well, I'm just going to back Ed up to something. One way. I just want to make sure everybody's up Are you going to back him up to the Ford, or are you going to just back him up? No, I'm going to back him up in time from what he's been. Oh. I'm going to back him up in time in two ways. In time. This is a segue. Kind of. You cool, Yanni? I'm cool. So, here's what, here's what I didn't get. They... The numbers are like like every not like everything, but like a lot of things. The numbers are way down from our our suppositions about what the situation might have been like at the time of European contact. Right. Okay. But between you said when they, there became a concerted effort to sort of tally up sage grouse in 1965, break down for me like what's kind of happened since 1965. Like what are the trends? And I know you're saying yep. it's hard because they go up and down by yep fifty percentage yeah. points. So. Um, the long-term trend, let me, let me just say that and a lot of people hang up on these numbers and they misinterpret them. And, you know, the trends are very interesting, but when you see these wild fluctuations, you know, right now we're 63% higher. This past year, or wait a minute, last year was 63% higher, the 2015 counts, than relative to the 2013 counts. But the 2013 counts were the second lowest in history okay. of the 19 for since 1965 to 2015. What was the first lowest? I can't remember. Way ago, or was it was like it the 95, I think, or something like that. Because you know, like mid-90s. every year, the Earth is sets a new record for the hottest year. Yeah. It's not like that. It was like no. the okay. Yeah, it was like 95, I think, something like that, mid 90s. And in, in fact, a little bit of. Let me finish this up, but a little bit of history. It all kind of really started in 95 when people really got concerned because that was mid-90s. That was one of the lowest points in record. But a lot of people have been saying, well, gosh, you know, we've got 63% more birds this year. That's proof positive that things are on the mend. 
Well, 63% is well within the range of what a bird can do, a game bird population can do naturally. And it's it has all, a good spring. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we've been having rain. You know, we've been getting rain since 2014, 2015, and we did pretty good this year. It's been dry lately, but we had a pretty good spring. And so the bird numbers are, are doing pretty well. Plus, we've been, you know, putting out all this conservation on the ground, you know, for sage grouse and trying to protect them. Uh, so it's all manifested into higher numbers. But if we get a drought again, they're going to drop regardless. Yeah, the I key is, is keeping them dropping so dramatically low and try and reduce the amplitude of that drop. That would be the goal of conservation. They're going to fluctuate, but the deal is trying not to have them drop so freaking much. Yeah, you know? dangerously low. Exactly. Now, in as much as I've followed this, I understand that, that uh, when you look at sort of the decline of sage grouse. I'm gonna, I'm gonna correct me where I'm wrong. I'm gonna rattle off some things you hear. I do have one more statistic throughout you. Please, I forgot. Please, go ahead. Because I meant to tell you, uh, you talked about the long-term trend. The long-term trend from 1965, even with all these ups and downs. That's where I was going with the crescendo here. The long-term overall trend is 0.8 percent decline every year. So the so oh. what that means is we're still on a negative trend mm. over that point eight percent every year. Yep, that's the that's what the current over the course of, of fifty years. Yep, since sixty five. Yep, so, yeah, that's damn near. Yeah, 50 so years. so basically, it it results in an annual decline of about point eight percent per year, and it's still on the decline. So we need to stabilize that so, as okay, well. That's I'm what I'm getting. At. Why is that? And I'll tell you what the things I always hear. No, I'm not even going to – there's no point for me telling you what I always hear. Why is that? And I know you don't know absolutely, but why the 0.8%? Well, habitat loss primarily. Sagebrush loss. Yeah, we've lost 50%. We started out a while back talking about the range. We've lost them in a couple of states. They're dramatically reduced in others. You know, they're in 11 states and, and a couple of provinces now, but they're in dangerously low numbers in Alberta and, 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 can, and other you know, parts of Canada and in some of the states. Like we kind of have to be North in the Dakota. capital of sage grouse right now, right? Wyoming has the largest population. Uh, I believe Idaho is, is next, then Nevada, then Oregon. So Colorado actually only has 4% of the birds, but they've got spectacular habitat in northwest Colorado, as Brody said, and, and North Park's still pretty good too. But it's been habitat loss. We've lost 50% of the range. And I don't remember when the calculation started, but somewhere in around 2000 or so, people started looking at this stuff real serious. And they figure about 50% of the, of the range is gone. We're, you know, We've lost 50% of our uninterrupted sagebrush habitat. Correct. Yep. Has a downward trend of mule deer populations it tracks mimicked that? It, it tracks it interestingly close yeah. at times. Yeah. Because mule deer are, again, not truly obligates, but they are really dependent on sagebrush. Yeah. Exactly. Shrinking wintering. Yep. Yep. You know what interesting I heard one time, and I, th- I think you could probably draw a, a, a parallel here. Someone was talking about um, the notion of, of predator swamping when you have a population of you know any kind of population that when they when they synchronize their reproduction so that all the young are born synchronized yep that it puts so much food on the ground all at once that you're going to have some of those animals wind up getting out of infancy 
yep. safely because the pre- there's just not enough predators to get them all at one time. Yep. If you staggered it out over the course of a month, it might be a different story. But it's like, bam, there they all are. There they all are. You can't yep. get them. And what they're talking, what they're pointing to is certain species of birds that will form these big nesting conglomerations. And the predators just work on the edges. Like snow geese up in, yeah, uh, yeah. in Alaska. The That's predators a good example. work on yeah. the edges, yep. and they never get to the core. Right. And what this thing was is once you start to break those groups up, you increase the edges, and you wind up seeing, like, strange things happen. Cause, and what this, what this kind of alludes to is how, you know, all the passenger pigeons we used to have, how they went so precipitously into extinction – when it wasn't like, why wasn't there a long evening period when there was just some? Why yeah. did it have to be, there's millions? And then none. Or none. And it was like, because somehow having any, like <laughs> having any relied on there being millions. Yeah, yeah. And the minute you like broke that, something like serious, like, like something fractured, and there's no, there was no middle ground for the species. Right. Market hunting <laughs> was a good example for that. Yeah, it's just like, it's like that. Bam, buffalo. You same them, thing. Yeah, you get them to a point, and it's just yep. like they just systematically yep. collapse. But so, There's a, but sage grouse have had a, have an autumn. Oh, I don't know. I was going to get at with that is it doesn't mean necessarily that we've lost fifty percent of our sagebrush plants. We've lost fifty percent of our like big open expanses of sagebrush that aren't interrupted by. Development, right? Right. Yeah. 50% of the original range has been completely lost to either cropland development, urbanization, other energy type development, whatever. It's been just fire, but it's been just lost. So it's gone. Now, after fire, it will come back, but it it takes decades for some of these fires to restore. It's amazing how long it takes sagebrush to come back. Well, you know, Steve, when you it's talked about forest, like we talked earlier, yeah. when, when you talked about the passenger pigeon, you know, they they nested in the hardwood forest in northern Michigan, so predominantly. And I mean, you wonder if the sage grouse is that's a bird that's just, I don't want to say doomed, but like, it's gonna, no matter what we do, could it just eventually go away? You know, what I mean, it's like, it it depends, like you say, big country, big area, and when that reduces. It, it sounds like it could almost be like a passenger pigeon thing without market hunting. I think with, you know, the conservation efforts that are underway now, and we probably need to talk a little bit about that, you know, because things have changed dramatically since the mid-2000s or so. I, I'm optimistic. However, <laughs> we're still still chunking away. And 0.8%. it remains to be seen. It's kind of a big test right now as yeah. to whether all these conservation efforts are going to work. Over time, but what I think problems Wyoming are the conservation efforts trying to address. Well, basically, in the eastern part of the range, the greater sage grouse energy development, which would be the Intermountain West and where we're sitting right now, you know, energy development, infrastructure development, wind, you know, wind energy, uh, oil and gas development, um, you know, urbanization, all of those kinds of things are major threats. Yeah, we've also had West Nile virus issues in this area, but in the west. Um, you know, in the Great Basin, Idaho, 
Nevada, Southern Oregon, fire and cheatgrass are a real bad combination because you get these massive fires that burn really hot, and then it takes decades for that stuff to come back. So you lose habitat much, There's forever. too much litter built up. Exactly, and that cheatgrass is a real flashy fuel. It's an annual, and it's a real problem. Um, the, and also conifer encroachment with uh, with juniper encroachment on sagebrush habitats, and there's a a big effort underway, particularly in the Great Basin, but other parts of the country as well, Utah and uh, and other 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 states as well, where they're really going after eradicating uh, juniper, which is good for it's good for deer, it's good for livestock production, it's good for it's good for sage grouse. And uh, one rancher in Idaho or not Idaho in uh, Oregon coined the phrase, "What's good for the bird is good for the herd," because yeah. basically, you cut these trees out, maybe even change your grazing practices a little bit. It's good for the livestock. It's good for good for sage grouse. Very compatible. But those are kind of the major threats. Um, it, it, okay, now explain how it came to be that a year ago. Everyone was on the edge of their seats about us included <laughs> about whether or not the they were going to get listed as a threatened species as, as a federally as a federally protected species under the Endangered Species Act. Okay, so as quick as I can, I'll give you the timeline. So I said in the mid nineties. Biologists now. A lot of people think you know the like the serial litigant uh, environmental groups were the ones that originally thought about this issue of sage grouse populations. It was the biologists within this Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies group that became deeply concerned in about 1994 because that was again one of the lowest. I think that was the lowest. Uh, that was the lowest um, number of lek counts in the history since they've been counting them. They actually considered petitioning to list. They decided at that point in time. The fish that it and game agencies. The fish and game agencies. And they decided it didn't meet all the criteria for listing at that time. A few years go along. We're still chunking away habitat. Um, you know, there was some litigation. Uh, basically, the petition, another petition was filed. And um, the. Uh, there was a petition to list the bird in, in 2005, and again, because of habitat loss and declining populations. In 2005, it was considered not warranted for listing. However, there was more litigation. Um, seemingly, uh, the judge was convinced that there were issues with the science and and more data were coming in during these lawsuits and they said and the court said basically you have to go back and revisit that 2005 decision that decision had to be rendered in 2010 and in 2010 the bird was in fact uh, considered warranted for protections under the ESA, but precluded. And what that means is basically they do warrant protections under the Endangered Species Act, but but the Fish and Wildlife Service has, you know, hundreds of species they're dealing with. There were others that had higher priority. Okay. So it, there was another bit of litigation, and basically the court ordered the Fish and Wildlife Service to make a decision by September 30th, 2015. That's how that all manifested. And in the interim, between 2005 and, and the 2015 decision, an awful but their, lot but their happened. their decision would be continually informed by whatever is going on. The decision wasn't going to be based upon 2005 stuff. No. 
Not at all. New stuff yeah. coming in. And between 2000, you know, in the, two, the era of 2000 to 2010, there was a lot of oil and gas development. There were a lot of big fires. There were a lot of things that were threatened. There were West Nile virus outbreaks. There was new science coming out showing that crop conversion in Montana, for example, if you just converted a small percentage into cropland, you saw big drops in sage grouse. So we're starting to really understand the landscape relationships and the loss of the habitat. So that was all informing this and that and you know, the service was ordered by the court and indeed they were ordered to to make a decision by twenty fifteen. That kind of had to happen because <laughs> nothing was happening. I mean, I wouldn't say nothing was happening. I, I, I apologize to my friends that have been working on this forever because they'll kill me for saying that. But a lot of things had been happening, but not enough was happening to thwart off a, a listing. Okay. And when that listing decision was set in stone in 2015, people started scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. The states that hadn't put plans together, all of a sudden were starting to try to figure out how they were going to put their plan together. They had strategies. They were dealing with sage grouse. All these states have been working with sage grouse for, for decades. But it put some urgency into actually getting meaningful strong conservation plans and measures and a bunch of private land efforts that were on that started happening in about 2010 all of that really started because of that 2010 warranted but precluded and then the listing deadline and you know the Nat, the natural resource conservation services sage grouse initiative was spawned in 2010 and they put almost a half a billion dollars into that i mean we don't see a half a billion dollars floating into very many conservation issues on yeah. private land. So it's been historic. And the states put all their plans together. Wyoming led the way. They started in 2008. They saw the writing on the wall and Governor Dave Friedenthal, then Governor Dave Friedenthal, and now Governor Mead, who you've spoken with a number of times on this issue. You know, they, they took, the, took the bull by the horns and leadership from the state's perspective and put a pretty good plan together. Other states have put their plans together, but some are, they're all varied. Some are better than others, but the federal plans are now in place, and these are land and resource management plans developed by the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service for the sagebrush ecosystem driven by sage grouse. But it's really a new way of, of doing business in this ecosystem. It doesn't shut off oil and gas. It doesn't shut off grazing and all of these kinds of things that people are saying. In some areas it does, but it tries to reduce that disturbance, which is so detrimental to grouse. But how do they know? So if in 2015 they came out and said, okay, everybody's got a good plan, listing is not warranted, but you're also telling me that the 0.8% decline is still happening annually. And, so, and the plans haven't all been implemented. So it was, it was speculative. It's speculative, and it's, it's a policy that came in, um, I believe, in the mid-2000s. A colleague of mine, Steve Williams, was, was the architect of this, and, and he was then director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, and it's called the Peace Policy. It's a policy for evaluation of conservation efforts, and basically it gives the Fish and Wildlife Service the ability to consider things that will happen, okay. but they have to have assurances that they will be implemented, and they have to have some level of appreciation and understanding that they'll be effective. So if... So if when, a, if, if, when Wyoming put a plan together, yep, and you, and you hear often that Wyoming put a good plan together and was aggressive about it, yep. is, that, is that fair? Yeah. What, what, like, what was the plan? 
Like, if I mean, if you had to, like, just very quickly give a synopsis of what the plan would be. Yeah, so uh, the main nuts and bolts of it is it basically allows us a maximum amount of disturbance in a landscape surrounding Lex, which is about four miles around Lex because of the data showing that the vast majority of females nest within, you know, four-mile radius of a Lex. So basically buffering those... Um, and allowing a certain amount of disturbance that's backed by, at least for now, we think it's backed by, this. at the time it was backed by the best science available. So it allows a certain amount of disturbance, which equates to uh, basically one well pad and an associated road and infrastructure per section of land. So imagine thinking about a section and having one well pad and a road going into it. That's it. Okay. Across the landscape. That's the max. And... And Wyoming's done a pretty good job of and denying, they rely denying on like enhanced drilling techniques too. That you exactly. just have one well pad and get. And that's the other ticket, Steve, because it's a very good point. Because you know, at the time when coal bed methane was being developed in northeast Wyoming, um, and you know, out in the Jonah Field and some of the country where you did the beaver trapping work yep. and the episode there in the Jonah Field, that was downhill drilling. And I mean, you could look over at the truck and there'd be another. From here to the you know thirty yards away, and there'd be a well pad. Sp- yeah. The spacing was ridiculously close, but now you know the spacing is much much further. The, the horizontal drilling you can put multiple, you know well pad you know wells on one pad, and go out in different directions and and get the resource without the disturbance. So it's changed dramatically, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but I, I want to say that. It, it basically, downhole drilling has been virtually eliminated with the horizontal drilling. Gotcha. So it's really helped. So um, like technology helped reduce the footprint it of extraction. Has. Yep, certainly has. Can you say, there, are you comfortable saying, like, name a state that has a bad plan or doesn't want to play ball? <laughs> or do, is, are you not comfortable doing that? Well, I'll just say that the state plans fall on a gradient, and some of them are based on voluntary mitigation programs and that's kind of it. Um, and others are like Wyoming where they have, you know, pretty strong statutorial assurances. And, you know, they have um, the executive orders from the governor, those kinds of things that really – and they're committing to doing it and they're doing it. Um, so they, they fall along a range of gradients. Most of them, you know, there's a couple of pretty good ones and some in the middle and some that are, are, are dependent, I would say, on the federal plans being in place. And that's kind of a I big argument right now. Because some in Congress are trying to basically say that the, the federal government should use state plans on federal ownership. And there's, there's all kinds of problems with that, uh, starting with, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of years of statutes, you know, of public lands and having states manage public lands. But again, some of those state plans just simply could not with, they couldn't address all of the threats. Gotcha. I mean, fire is a really good example because, you know, firefighting costs are astronomical, as most of us know. And, you know, a, a given state couldn't probably deal with handling those threats on, on their own. You know, they're, they're dependent on federal partners and private partners, too. So, so one of the things the Department of Interior did was, you know, with the states, was develop this coordinated firefighting and, and an invasive weed plan as well. But the firefighting plan seems to be working, um, and there's just more coordination now between counties, states, federal agencies, and private, you know, landowners on firefighting than there ever was in the history of wildlife conservation. And quite frankly, 
you know, in my history as a, as a biologist in my career, I've never seen anything quite like this. I mean, we've never really seen anything like this since Theodore Roosevelt's days. And when we had to do something or we were going to lose buffalo, elk, mule deer, pronghorn, all these species that were just that close to becoming extinct because of yeah. market hunting and habitat loss. Do you think that we were, like, were we, did we come as close to losing elk? We damn sure came as close to losing bighorns as we are right now. But did we come as close to losing elk? as we are right now of sage grouse. No, I don't think so. We sage, came closer sage, with tur- we came closer to losing turkeys I bet. Probably you. closer with turkeys, but yeah. I mean sage grouse were on the verge. And I think, think the, so? I think the urgency, well, it's like you said earlier, you know, some of these populations there's a tipping point. Every population has a tipping point and they just spiral out of control. Now I've heard one grouse biologist say once they get below 100,000 they just spiral. Atwater's prairie chicken's a really good example. There's a handful hanging on in Texas. Gotcha. But they're never going to come back, probably. And can you talk about the, the Gunnison subspecies? Um, how- a little bit. I, I haven't worked on them as much, but it's a subspecies of sage grouse. And they are right. endangered, correct? They're or threatened. threatened. Yeah. So they're managed differently than these birds are. Correct. They now are... are are managed by the federal government, basically, but they're working on that. They're gonna they're gonna work on. Um, I think um, the what led to that decision is now being addressed, and the service is working very hard to work with states, call the state of Colorado and and Utah to uh, to get that decision uh, to to bring that population to a point where they can they can take it off the list. Um, there, there's one core population in Gunnison County with, with a solid number of birds, and then there's a bunch of satellite populations, and the satellite populations became an issue for the service, and they some of them were pretty close to blinking out, and there's 50, 100 birds. And, you know, when I talked to my state colleagues, they, you know, a lot, of, a lot of them felt that some of those, that just there was nothing more that could be done. I mean, they've got easements. They've got all the protections they could possibly do. So, But they're working together and trying to— reproducing. They're reproducing. It's just um, at that particular juncture, the service felt like they had to they had to go ahead and list the bird. Um, Can I get a question so, in about the sage rail? Is there any re- the is there any relocation of sage rails being done? A little bit. Do, do you know of? A little bit. Um, that's that's fairly controversial. Well, that's, um, the source populations the source aren't population. strong enough to support it. Well, it, I think some, and it's not biologists necessarily that are stirring up the controversy i think some state legislators wonder why we're moving our birds to somewhere else when we when we have to you know have impacts on oil and gas industry and and wind industry and others and now we're shipping our birds to canada or somewhere else that's that's a little bit of the controversy but it's been done and Mm -hmm. you know i i had a comment on a blog post i just had recently on uh on captive rearing now i can assure you captive rearing is the only reason we still have black-footed ferrets I guarantee I went to grad school with the guys that went out and caught some of those original ones and worked on some of the the ferret work. We would not have black-footed ferrets in this country, or condors for that matter, without a captive breeding But they know for a fact it didn't work with turkeys. Yeah, and I don't think it would work with sage-grouse. Kind of what I wrote the individual was we weren't at that point. But even if we got to that point, I'm not convinced it would work. It's never been done with with game birds like that. So although you could probably argue, you know, with the exotics that are here, there's – 
some some precedent for that. But. They essentially do it with pheasants, but it doesn't actually work. Exactly. Like if you, really didn't establish continually, if you didn't continually yeah. stock pheasants, you wouldn't. I mean, You'd never have them. Yeah, no. exactly. It's like basically like it's basically like a farm animal that you hunt for. Exactly. So I don't I don't think it would work for sage grouse. So so okay. So where we're at now is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says okay. Sounds like everybody's ready to play ball. You guys have some good plans put together. We trust that you're going to pursue these plans. If you had to rate um, the adoption and enforcement of the plan on a 1 to 10 national average, where are we? As far as people being like, I'm doing the plan. Look, I already started it's kicking ass. I'm going to put my professor hat on because I never give perfect scores by any stretch, but I'm not going to give an average either. I'm going to give it a seven. And the reason I give it that is it was an extraordinary. See, you don't give tens. Not very often. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but plan, I want, but plan, I want it to get to a ten. I want plan, implementation, implementation to get to a ten. Is that a seven? Well, I think. Right are now, some it's, states, it's just are beginning. some states nines and some states twos. Yeah, I think so, and I think yeah, you said overall, so I gave you the seven. No, 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 but I no. think you know some are just getting started, and the BLM is really just getting started. They've been they just released instruction memorandums to the field offices, and all that is for everybody out there is guidance to the field offices on what they're supposed to be doing on implementing sage grouse conservation and these plans. And so they've been implementing some things, but they're just getting started. And I think, you know, and we've got um, a little bit of a hammer, the ESA kind of hanging over everyone's head, and it's called the five-year review. So they're going to review this in 2020. That was my next question. Yep. And what the service is looking for, I, you know, the, there's a, a short document I'll send you. You'll, you'll find it intriguing because they are looking for exactly what we've been talking about, implementation. Have you? Did you implement the plans the way you said you would? Did you address the threats? Why would they care threats? about anything but where the numbers are? Well, like, who cares? Like, okay, like, let's say they're, they're concerned about the numbers, too. I mean, they definitely are going to look at the numbers. But if everybody but, implements their plans and it has no effect, well, at that point, they might be, what are we going to do if we list them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll be an interesting uh, challenge for us if all this actually gets implemented and the numbers still continue to decline. Then we're going to have to readjust. It's just going to get real. We're going to have to readjust. Yeah, then we're talking passenger pigeon. So, or you know, you're probably talking ESA. They may they may list the bird if 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 the numbers are not responding. Again, keeping in mind they fluctuate. Right. You know, within you know a wide range as game bird populations do. But I'm pretty like, optimistic. Get, that, I see what you're saying because you could have a five year stretch of just like perfect weather conditions. Yep. But then the core problems have never been addressed. You exactly. might still be like, yeah, we've got some good birds because it's been wet. But meanwhile, we've seen sage, sage brush habitat, sage grouse habitat continue to plummet. Yep. Once we get a five-year drought, the birds are cooked. And that's exactly it because when we have that drought, and I guarantee you we will, and oil prices are going to go back up and there's going to be more demands for resources on these public lands, then we're going to really test conservation. Then we're really going to see how it works because we got, in my opinion, Steve, we got lucky because in 2014, the rains came back. If we had stayed in drought, that's part of the reason the birds plummeted like they did. Prairie chickens plummeted. I mean, Ronnie, we had, I mean, you know, 
across our bird hunting range and all oh, the yeah. birds that we hunt. Quail was phenomenally uh, terrible. Quail really took it hard in yeah. those droughty years, yeah. as they always do. And had those rains not come back, I, I'm convinced that the service probably would have listed the bird. Okay. Because the numbers would have been even lower so and we got, kept going down. We got in 2014 lucky. and 15, we got we got lucky in yeah. there on an uptick. Yeah. It gave us a breather to finish the plans and now get them implemented. So, yeah, exactly. To your point, now we got to deal with the core of the issues, and that's what the plans are going to hopefully address. One thing I found interesting looking at what kills sage grouse, that they, they fly low. And they crash into fences. Yeah. Occasionally they do. <laughs> How significant is that? Um, you know. Because there's a lot of talk of going and marking fences yeah. and lowering fence yeah. heights. Yeah. They definitely kill some birds, but it's not a major threat. Neither is hunting. I mean, you know, hunting has never been identified as a major threat by the Fish and Wildlife Service or any of the state agencies. But certainly the individuals that get shot the, or hit a wire, they're, they're, yeah. they're out of How the population. How long is the list but, of major threats? Well, you know, again, it's mostly about habitat loss and disturbance. So, you know, it's, it's pretty short. I mean, it's a long list of things that kill sage grouse and cause problems. But the major, major threats are, are really pretty short. Why, has, why do some states continue to allow sage grouse hunting? Well, in part because, and, and I just preface that by saying the state wildlife agencies have really done a very good job of managing hunter, hunter, um, hunters and, and uh, bag limits and seasons. I mean, sportsmen have, have sacrificed, I'll say, and maybe that's not the right word, but we have certainly contributed by loss of opportunity. Um, and that's, that's exactly what the state should do when populations are low. They should manage hunter numbers and or um, season and bag limits. In Oregon, it's been a two-bird permit system for as long as I can remember. I moved there in 1990, and it's still that like way. Like on turkeys, you get a tag. Exactly. Yeah. It's a trophy tag. You get two birds a year, and that's it. And it's been that way forever, regardless of whether the numbers are up or down. Okay. That's just the way they do it. But they may issue more permits, see. In, in the years when they're up. What do but, the states feel that they're gaining? Okay, they're losing well, some number of birds that are being mechanically removed. Like, right. there's, no, there's not a habitat destruction. There's not a significant disturbance, right? They're not affecting um, chick survival and mortality. Like, right. but, so I see that, but like when, when a state weighs out, okay, we're going to lose some birds, but we're going to gain some what by having a hunting season? They gain advocates and they gain support, and they provide opportunity for the sportsmen, which are their customers, basically. And again, in Montana, a recent um, article I read in Montana of I think thirteen hundred birds have been radio marked over a over about a sixteen year period. Nine of them were hunter harvested birds. So they use those statistics to determine that you know hunting well, mortality is, for, again, is now? like a mark and recapture. Well, it's just radio-marked birds that were turned in and cause of mortality determined. Nine of those were hunter harvest. And how many did they have? 1,300 since 2000. So 1,300 birds. It's just a fraction. And that nine got killed by hunters. So that's one study. Now, it's going to vary from area to area. Obviously, this area that, you know, we have to be in now is... Well, it depends on how much, how long the hunt season. Yeah, exactly. Sure. So Wyoming used to have, I think when I was going to grad school here in the 80s, it was a 30-day hunting season, three-day bag limit, and I shot any number of sage <laughs> And in that 
that month period. And it may have been longer. Montana, I think, was at least two months, and it might have been a little longer. But again, the states have responded, so they have contracted season lengths. We've been at two weeks uh, and two birds a day here in Wyoming for a while. I think uh, in 13, it might, or in uh, 12, it was one week and two birds, four in possession. So they've adjusted those harvest rates accordingly, and they've actually closed seasons. You know, the northeast part of uh, of Wyoming used to have uh, strong populations of sage-grouse. It's closed now. Yeah. And really, where are you saying closed. you can hunt two days? That's North Park, so near Walden, just a few game management units around Walden, Colorado. Did you ever go hit the two-day season? I did last year. Yeah. Did you find any birds? I did. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, 
poor, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. It's a thing I've I've been curious about for a long time, and I think about it all the time, is this idea of um, gaining advocacy. I was I was recently had occasion to have a conversation with a uh, a professor who teaches animal ethics, and he's an animal rights advocate. Um, he's pretty true to form. I mean, he does a very strict vegan lifestyle. You, you, you can't point to this dude, and there's not a lot of hypocrisies, right? Like he he has a set of beliefs, he can defend them, and he lives them. You know, he's not your, like, anti-hunter who, like, buys chickens and shit at the yeah, store. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just can't even have that have a conversation there. But this guy was fascinating and very bright. And um, we were having this conversation, and, and, and I was trying to explain to him hunting conservation, like hunter conservationists. And, and I was just, you know, as a, as a case in point, I just brought up uh, – I believe I, I believe the situation I sketched out for him was I was mentioning work done by Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, okay. With how many you know the 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 hundreds of thousands of acres they've helped protect and set aside, right? All the work they've done on habitat improvements, all this kind of stuff, and I'm like, the money comes from dudes who like to hunt elk, and these dudes who like to hunt elk like hunting elk so much that they go to these banquets and whatnot and start give have a couple drinks or whatever and, and start, <laughs> start giving and start the number. <laughs> giving away money or they sit at home and just like write checks. Yep. They're like, I like to hunt elk, therefore I will spend a bunch of money to not only help elk, but I'll spend a bunch of money to help elk habitat and increase elk habitat. And he was saying, man, I saw a rip and shooting star over there. He was saying it's a shame that it takes that. And I'm like, yeah, but you just have to open you, you have to be a pragmatic individual. He's like, why can't they give all that money and not go hunting? I'm like, because they, if they didn't go hunting, they wouldn't have even been aware of the problem and went and gave the money. Yeah. And it's the like, que- and the you question. don't give the money first. It's like, you don't like, it yeah. took me until I was in my mid thirties to get serious about conservation. Yeah. Right. And, and like spending yeah, a conversation because, because it's like you go hunt ducks first. Then you say, I want more ducks and better conservation. Oh, I don't know why it works that way. Yeah. But no one who's ever seen a duck or an elk or a sage grouse. It's just like, I'm sorry. But generally, those people are not going to be like, man, we need to do something about sagebrush. Yeah. And it was like, he's like, well, it's just too bad that that's the case. I'm like, you know what? It's too bad that all kinds of shit is all kinds of ways. Yeah, right. But at a point, <laughs> you just have to kind of open up your mind to the fact that that's, that's frankly, that's how it works. Well, the next series of questions is, do you like open natural spaces? Yeah, sure. I love the open natural spaces. Well, what do you pay? You know, what, what do you pay into wildlife conservation? A lot of those folks 
don't want to give money. Like I always tell people, buy a duck stamp or buy a hunting license. You don't have to go. Just buy it. It goes to the game and fish, and they use that for habitat conservation, all kinds of things. Matter of fact, it's a fit. But they, yeah, for all you folks that don't hunt at all, and then don't spend diddly on wildlife conservation. Go buy a duck stamp because what ninety some percent goes to buy wetland habitat exactly, which is we'll see how many non, we'll see how many non hunters are going to run out and buy a duck stamp. <laughs> well, part of their philosophy there is that well, no, it goes to hunting. It goes toward hunting and hunter management. So no. philosophically, they struggle with that. But we have been trying to crack that damn nut for <laughs> since I've been in the profession and forever. How do you tax? the non-consumptive user and get them excited about things. We can't get people excited about sage grouse. Most sportsmen, you say, hey, you know, we got we to gotta work on the sage grouse thing. It doesn't resonate. What resonates is the sagebrush ecosystem, the fact that this is home to the kinds of critters that you like, pronghorn, elk, mule deer, those kinds of things, and sage grouse. Oh, and by the way, sage That grouse. gets them excited. Yeah. <laughs> then you start putting the big picture together, and I think really, you know, people <laughs> – they they don't see the big picture. They can't see the forest for the trees. And there there was no a time when sage grouse weren't exactly viewed as a premier game bird. You know, right. several exactly. decades ago. Right. I've heard so many people say, "Oh, you, you oh, they're terrible to eat." You know, it's no, that it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. But you you know, people didn't even chase them hardly back right. in the day. Yeah, people, yeah, but I mean that kind of thing. Like people said about everything. Yeah, right. pronghorn. Everything they say it about anything yeah. to eat sage. <laughs> Yep. So, all right, look into your crystal ball. Matter of fact, we should do a time capsule. Brody <laughs> has a shovel in his truck. We'll make a time capsule. We'll bury it right here, and we'll come dig it up. In, uh, in five years, what are they, what, what's, the, what's the service going to say? The federal, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is going to take a gander and don't give me some, like, optimistic BS. <laughs> or don't give me pessimistic BS. Give me the straight dope. The straight dope. I like, think, if you actually had to get it right, you had your, your time capsule had to be right. We're going to get it right on Sage Grouse. And they'll come, they'll come like, to a not warranty. I want you to be telling me the truth, but I don't want you to be doing, like, your job right now. I can't help but be optimistic, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I think they'll come to a not warranted in five uh, years. And not, uh, yeah, they'll continue with the not warranted decision. I um, so pray for I rain. I think pray for rain. <laughs> but again, rain the true test of these conservation plans, it, it you know, and again, it's all predicated on them getting implemented. Right now, you know the. The, the work of putting all of this planning together in the science is done. Now they just got to get it on the ground. They do the work. And the private landowners are way ahead of the game. They are doing the work. Is that right? They are. They're doing the work, man. They are putting a lot of money into it and a lot of good, very proactive conservation ranchers, just, just good ranchers, just good people. They know. They know how to manage their land. Not everybody does, but... The good ones are doing it right. Just right over the hill here is my friend that uh, was in that article. That oh, he yeah, yeah. He's yeah. just right over the That's hill That's an interesting there. guy. Great guy. Doing good things. And um, I, I, I think we'll get there in 2020. But um, there's not a lot of room to screw up. There's not a lot of room to screw up because 
I don't know when oil is going to hit again. I don't yeah. know when the next boom for something on our and you know extractive resources on our public lands is going to hit hard. It's, it's but kinda, it gonna, hasn't ground to a stop, but it's slowed way down. It slowed way down, and it gave us a breather. You know, I, again, if we'd have had eighty dollar barrel oil in a drought, I don't know how the service wouldn't have. Of, uh, I, I give you a, I give you a comparison. Lesser Prairie chickens were listed in May of 2014. They were contemplated and petitioned for listing in 1995. So this isn't just sage grouse. This has been happening around the around the country, you know, with various game bird populations. Lesser prairie chickens were really declining, and finally in 2014 they decided to list them. In the previous two years. Now, mind you, there were, I think, an estimated 120,000 lesser prairie chickens, I think, in 95 when they were contemplating this. In 2012, I believe it was, in, you know, below 100,000, and the population halved twice. Based on let counts and these crude population estimates, they halved in the two years they were trying to make the decision. How do you not list the bird? They're estimated at 17,000 birds. Where are they now? Uh, they're on the uptick. Because of the rain and conservation. So they're on the uptick. I don't know where they're sitting right now, but the range-wide population goal is now 67,000. I thought the number was too low. I mean, it's half of what they were when they originally were petitioned. But it's, you know, it's still double what, what the birds were a couple of years ago. So they've, they've come up, but, you know, drought will hit that region again too. So my point is, is the true test of these conservation plans is – is in the making. And I'll tell you the wild card in our crystal ball jumping ahead in our time machine is fire. You can have a 200,000 acre fire and nothing flat in some of this country. And if it's not taken care of, it'll, it'll take care of I me. Mean, if it's not put out, you can burn a lot of acres pretty fast. But th- that's a whole other conversation I want to have because you're in that for, you're perpetuating a problem you've already created. This stuff used to burn all the time. Yeah. In not severe way. Yep. So now we've prolonged it where we have tinder boxes. And now we're in a situation where we have to like keep doing the screw up to make up for the bigger screw up. Yep. <laughs> it's not a bad point. It's a good point. I mean, the cheatgrass is really perpetuated in the Great Basin. You know, that's, that's really, really created an untenable situation for those guys and it's hard. They're they're making some advances on how to address cheatgrass, but man, that's a big yeah. problem. My so. brother, one of my bro- both my brothers are ecologists. Yep. Um, one of them has always worked on these plant ecosystems, arid land, you know, range land ecosystems, and has done a lot of work on cheatgrass. And right now, he's focused almost exclusively on uh, shrub regeneration getting sage yeah. brush and other shrubs to come back on degraded landscapes or disturbed landscapes. Is that in Montana? He does, he does work all over the West, but yeah, he's in, he's in based Montana. in Montana. Yeah. And a lot of stuff's like coal mine, like when you do open, you know, open surface coal mines, yep. part of the remediation process, you know, at a time you could get away with just being like, Oh, you know, it's, we put it up in grass. Yeah. Now you're like, no, it needs to be, you know, it's the, the, the more of the mind frame of, no, it needs to be kind of back to like what it was, but it's very difficult to do. Yeah. And um, he spends a lot of time working on that. And it takes a and, lot and of he, time. And he, and, he's, and he talks about, he talks about the sage grouse issue has had a, 
has had an impact on his work because it's affected where money flows. Yeah, absolutely. They're pumping tons of money yeah. into it. Is he getting some of that? You have to. I mean, I, you know, I I I always hesitate to because the <laughs> things he works on are you know there's yeah. you know it's nuanced and and sensitive and and I don't. I, yeah. uh, but what does he say about? I wish he was here. What does he say about reclamation time? It takes decades in a lot of cases, but. I'd, uh, you have to, I'll put yeah, you in touch. I'm just curious. <laughs> but, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm not a restoration ecologist. But, but, he recently you know, had some sort of epiphany. He had, right? he had the most. He had the most groundbreaking. Uh, he was telling me that he had the the what he felt was going to be the most impactful thing of his career. Something he found out. Well, that's pretty cool. About regenerating shrubs. Yanni, what, you, what do you got? You got a little marriage advice? <laughs> hey. Can we talk about today's hunt? Or is that? too early just not a lot to say it was a big hunt not a lot of harvesting <laughs> yeah we covered a lot of ground man but i just feel like we're um you know i feel like ain't like you know my my uh sage grouse my lifelong sage grouse harvest to date is one because i've never focused on hunting them i run into them uh because i like to you know being like generally a big game hunter i run into them hunting antelope i run into them out messing around um we used to run into a lot of them when we did a lot of late season rabbit hunting on the plains. Um, but you know, the seasons are short, never lined up. And I'm just not, this is the first time I've ever like devoted. This is the first time I've ever devoted a day to finding some. (laughs) And like any kind of thing, you know, you can cold roll. Well, as I know very well from this spring, we cold rolled into a new Turkey hunting spot and there's no one talking about listing turkeys right now. We got turkeys and then, far more states than we had them at the time of European contact. We rolled into a new turkey spot this spring and had our asses handed to us for about three days in a row. (laughs) So it's like any kind of like real hunting, um, any kind of real hunting, there's a learning curve, man. And it's like, you know, if you just, if you just think you're going to cold roll into some new spot and start knocking the hell out of everything, you either don't know what you're talking about or you've had some really unusual hunts in your life. Yeah, so we were out we here last weekend them. and didn't find them in my honey holes either. So, and they move around. Yeah. So it's the, like, I mean, it's, it's like, it's lot. really, it's, I'm really reluctant to have a, to have a bad day and talk about how it was a bad hunt. We had something happen tonight that was interesting as we got to, uh, we messed with the badger for a while and, um, and, uh, you know, him hit, not, not mess with him, like, you know, just observed him to the point where he got frustrated with us. And gave us a couple of hisses, but uh, you know it was a f- we had a fun day. But um, no, it's it's interesting. You know, it's like you're trying to learn something new. Yanni, you got anything? You stood up, Yanni. What's going on? He's tired. I'm getting smoked out. No, <laughs> I've been getting smoked out, so I'm trying to get out of the. You mean you know your body makes out. it eddy? Yeah, it's not from the fire. Oh, oh, <laughs> he's got gas. Oh, because you're really sensitive to Ron's cigarette smoking. Yeah. Cigar, yeah. small cigar, please. Thank you. Ron smokes. Um, Ron, ch- this, Ron's the only guy I've ever met in my entire life to chain smoke Swisher sweets. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you ought to give it a try sometime. <laughs> I might. That's all you got, Yanni. Just you're, you don't, you're getting market. sick of that smoke. Yeah. Ron, <laughs> I would like to say, as a lifelong bird hunter, how frustrating it is. To try to do, I feel like the guy 
I used to take guys to South Dakota after I had my learning curve, and I'd take friends to South Dakota. You know a couple of them, Steve. Mm-hmm. And within sometimes a half a day, they start going, well, you know what? We ought to try, yeah. you know? And I found myself, like, talking to Garrett today while we're walking, overthinking the hell out of it. You know, like, okay, you know what we should do? No. You know what we should I'll bet you it's this. I'll, it was so frustrating because everything else I've hunted, it's kind of like I've never hunted. I've never hunted an obligate species, and it just kind of today it just drove me a little mad crazy. Thinking, okay, this looks like really good cover because I think of birds that need really good cover, and then we talk to somebody like, no, no, don't go in the waist high cover, go in the knee high cover, and like, yeah, but there's less cover here. Why wouldn't the bird want more cover? And it it was just it's a very frustrating day. I'm I'm ready to go at it again tomorrow. Already, my knees are my knee, they had ibuprofen's kicked in. I feel good. I've had a beer, but I've never hunted a species was that aggravating before. It, yeah, I think that it's the part of the problem is you look out there like normally when you're hunting a game bird, you, you pretty quickly learn to sort of identify right. Where you can rule out, you know, ninety five percent of the area. Right, right. Don't yeah. go into the hardwoods after grouse. Yeah, and yeah. You, maybe you'll find like one. Focusing on right things, and you and you sort of look at it and you just start seeing it in the way of like that's where they're going to go. Right. It could be really simple, like mm-hmm. the sunflower patch mm-hmm. for morning doves, or it could be just like you, know, you just look into a, a an alder stand or a poplar stand, and you like you see the parts where the grouse would hang out. Right, like right. It's, there's some undergrowth. See a thorn apple tree in there. Yeah. You're like, yep, yeah, there's some We're food. Here, you're just looking. You're like, it's all food. Down. The whole valley is food. It's yeah. It it, it it's very tough mentally. Well, when they're concentrating in the meadows, you can hit those, you know. But they've scattered. They've yeah. they've moved around. Yeah. Like I say, we were out here last weekend hunting where I thought they would be. Pretty predictive where I thought it'd be, and I've shot them before and. Not to be had. They hadn't been harassed by hunters and moved around. Yeah, yeah. So they were moving around the landscape. Brody, what do you got? Oh, I, I just think it's pretty important to reiterate how, especially for a lot of guys that are big game hunters, how linked sage grouse are to some much more popular game animals like mule deer and antelope. Like if you like shooting giant mule deer bucks, you should be worried about sage grouse also. Is that right? I think so, don't you? Yeah, I, do. I mean, wherever sage grouse live, it's a good chance it's mule deer winter range. And, you know, we've been looking at nice antelope bucks the whole time we've been here, too. So, My concluding thought, I don't know if it counts. It counts as a thought. It's not very complete. It has a question mark on the end of it. And it's like, I hope that I want to believe in the idea that industry and wildlife can continue to find a way to work together. When I was young, before I got, I developed the pragmatism that comes with age, that comes with age, <laughs> I had like, I, you know, I was acutely aware of environmental issues in, you know, my 20s. And my solution was that you would just destroy every road and and revert everything back into like a pure wilderness over time you start to be like you know what and and i still like you know i i love the idea of that but you go like that's not gonna work 
because people, um, including myself, we use fossil fuels. We have families. We have jobs. We have income. We need Cell to support. Phones. Yeah, it's like we. It's like you know. It, it just we rely on minerals. We rely on fossil fuels. Our economic health depends on those things. And when you become, if you become a student of the world, you realize that one of the worst things that can happen to wildlife is societal impoverishment. Impoverished societies, impoverished societies who have, you know, sustained endemic levels of unemployment, failed states, okay? Impoverished societies do not do well with wildlife. No. Nope. Never have. Africa is a good Yeah. One. No, I remember going yeah. to like, you know, I remember going to the Philippines, bringing my, and being like, holy smokes, is this going to be good fishing? Right? The Philippines. Coral reefs, 7,000 islands. Dude, you can't find a fish. <laughs> it's like impoverished cultures that don't have strong leadership. Wildlife suffers immensely. So I'm like, yes, there is a great benefit to wildlife to having an economically strong society of, of people who earn a livable wage. It just is like, it's hard to explain, but there's a correlation there. Absolutely. Wealthy wildlife is a luxury that can be supported by wealthy societies. So I've come to, over time, really root for our ability to be an advanced wealthy society that can attack things like poverty and can attack unemployment and still find a way to coexist with sustainable amounts of wildlife. And I think that watching right now, you can watch a handful of things play out. What's happening in with, with fisheries, redfish, red snapper, like various fisheries in the Gulf States you look and you, you, you see that struggle. Um, looking at wolves, grizzly bears, sage grouse in the West, you see the struggle where it's, you might take a superficial look and be like, oh, it's industry against wildlife. And they're diametrically opposed. But then as you get a little more, like if you get a little more nuanced, a little more complex look at it, you realize that the struggle is finding the technologies and the intelligence and the restraint to allow those two things to function together. It's not that one's going to defeat the other. It's that you're going to find a way to allow them to come together. I heard a guy uh, talking about climate change and he was saying that the answer isn't going to be personal restraint the solution will wind up being technological. It won't be because some people canceled their vacation because they didn't want to fly on a plane, because they didn't want to increase their carbon footprint. It'll be because, like, technology. Something fixes it, yeah, that we think of. You know, and you just, it's like, I just watch, and and like we're saying, like, you know, very, like, drilling technologies. If you want to get interested in wildlife, it's like, you might also kind of become interested in drilling technologies yeah. and in all these other things that make it so uh, that just make it frustrating. And what you wind up not having is and it's a, and it's really refreshing to have them. It feels great is having bad guys yeah. and like the world, you know, 
there's just not a lot of there are some there are not a ton of real bad guys i agree yep. there's a lot of people who are are focused on some aspect and they might weigh things differently and you're trying to talk to them be like yeah i agree what you're talking about is important but can you just tip it a little bit toward what i'm talking about i'm not asking you to to ignore what you're talking about but just listen a little bit to what I'm saying, too. That's where the extremes on both ends of this particular issue, to me, have been mildly marginalized because a lot of people came together to seek that balance. Because without the public support of any of this, we don't have conservation in this country. I mean, if you asked a basic question of the population, would you be willing to pay 10 cents a gallon more for sage grouse? What do you think the answer would be? I would say absolutely. Absolutely, they would. No, I would say that I would. I, yeah, you and I would, but I can't. And most sportsmen. I think, I think the majority of the public would say no. No. Yeah. In that well, context, that question. But I think when you put that bigger picture perspective and that balanced ideal out there about what these ecosystems really provide, then they may, then they would understand. Yeah. The general public. Is yeah, what that's I'm what you're saying. saying. Would yeah. you pay 10 cents more for sage grouse? Yeah, probably not. Would you pay 10 cents more for 360 species that rely on a certain exactly. ecosystem? Yeah. So that produces hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can we do nine? I'm up for nine. Uh, Ed, you got any uh, final thoughts? Uh, it's been great. Marriage advice, anything like that? Uh, no marriage advice. I've been married 10 years now, so. Good for you. Yeah. Ed cooked himself some Sandhill Crane. That's a, bird that, uh, that's a bird that won't many around, and now they're doing pretty good. Yep. Yep. Doing good. All right. No, I just uh, nah, well, you pre- do got appreciate one. you having you guys. I uh, appreciate what you do. The uh, I'm glad you got out to experience this ecosystem because it's something else. Yeah, and, and so far, really so place. far, our party hasn't uh, reduced sage grouse population one bit <laughs> at all. See, it's a fraction of the mortality. <laughs> That's where they get that hunter. Hunter has not much impact on yeah, the species. They, they, they came to our camp. These hunters, they came Steve, to our camp. Steve and I have not had has zero impact. Like we looked into it, and they don't do diddly. <laughs> Steve wrote me an email. I got a last conclusion. Thought. Steve wrote me emails. You know, you know, when we get out there, maybe we should social restraint. And came up with like maybe we should just I shoot. We we'll just get one each. We we'll get one. You're allowed two, but we're gonna get one. And I wrote you back. Let's find one first. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we're still doing. We're still that trying was, to find tomorrow. one tomorrow. Tomorrow will be a better day. Wise words. All right. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of axis deer. So much so that they're causing ecological. Damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. 
I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.